and welcome to a very special holiday edition of Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that follow in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Rob Lamorgis. Garbage day! (laughs) (laughs) I know I try to pick weird stuff sometimes, but it's with this one, I just wanted to give the people what they want. Sometimes you gotta give the people what they want. You gotta give the people what they want. Uh, I want to take everybody back. Uh, If in episode eight of our Get Me Another Halloween series, which I highly recommend checking out because it's a terrific episode. A classic series that reintroduced the long-lost classic John Carpenter's Halloween to the general yeah. movie-going yes. public. People had forgotten about that movie until yeah. until we, we talked about it on the show. And now, you know, everybody talks about it in a way that, you know, you, you didn't have yeah. before. You, you said Halloween, and they'd be like, oh, the David Gordon Green movie. Right. Oh, no, no, there was one in <laughs> 70s, too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In that episode, in episode eight of Get Me Other Halloween, we discussed the controversial 1984 slasher film Silent Night, Deadly Night, which chronicled the story of Billy Chapman, who, after his parents were murdered by a man dressed as Santa Claus, grew up in a strict Catholic orphanage until when he was 18, he went on a murderous rampage wearing a Santa suit. Now, even though that film concludes Billy's story pretty definitively... The saga was not over. Now, in the spirit of the season, we will be exploring the second and third films in the Silent Night, Deadly Night series, which tell the story of Billy's younger brother, Ricky, who also has a murderous yuletide journey ahead of him. Welcome to the Get Me Another Silent Night, Deadly Night Christmas Special. The nightmare began with Silent Night, Deadly Night. Need a ride, Santa Claus? Oh, no, not exactly. But it isn't over yet. In fact, the ultimate nightmare is about to begin all over again. Silent Night, Deadly Night, Part 2. Hey, you little bastard! All Ricky ever wanted was a little kindness. And all he ever got was pain. She was naughty. Now he wants revenge. And this time... Garbage day! He's going to get... Step by step. Weapon by weapon. Naughty. Victim by victim. The terror's coming home, and he's all grown up. Silent Night, Deadly Night, Part 2. I've got a present for you! Terrifying suspense shocker you've been waiting for. Last time it thrilled you. This time... Kill you. Silent Night Releasing Corporation presents Silent Night, Deadly Night, Part 2. 
Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2 was directed by Lee Harry, whose credit actually reads director-editor. And it was written by Harry, Joseph H. Earl, Dennis Patterson, and producer Lawrence Applebaum. And while most sequels are driven by what we would call the get-me-another impulse, basically a producer or studio says, hey, that movie worked, get me another. This has to be one of the most blatant examples of that concept, where director Harry Lee was given the task by Applebaum to re-edit the original film and pass it off as a sequel. Now, he said, I don't think I could do that. I need to create some new footage. But at the same time, they use a good third of part two's running time is just a reprise of part one. It is amazing. Yeah. Now we we open with Ricky, but it is so you get a little bit of the wrapper of the modern day stuff. Yes. But it is at about, I think, the 40 minute mark of Silent Night, Deadly Night Part Two when you stop watching the first film. <laughs> I actually clocked it's it's around the 40 minute mark that you don't is the first time you get footage that is either not Silent Night Deadly Night Part 1 or in the room in the interview room where all of that was shot. It's like oh they they go outside the room. The film stars Eric Freeman, James L Newman, Elizabeth Kaitan, and basically the whole cast of Silent Night Deadly Night Part 1 in reused footage. So much so there's two separate cast lists at the end of the movie there's like a part two cat and then it's like from silent night deadly night part one and and by the way chris <laughs> we'll 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 talk about this more later the balls <laughs> absolute brass yeah fucking balls yeah. yeah to have mother superior from part one in those clips for the yeah. first 40 minutes and then to recast her. It's amazing. And 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 the the sheer the 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 thing that I keep coming back to for Silent Night Deadly Night Part 2, the sheer audacity of the whole fucking thing. It's amazing. It, it's I love it as do many people <laughs> and I Look, I'm in, we're going to talk about stuff that's technically not right or blah oh, blah yeah. blah, but I just oh, sure. want to I just want to say this at the top in defense of Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2, and all films of its ilk. Do you know, what what year did this come out, Chris? 1987. 1987. Do you know how many well-reviewed, respectable movies from 1987 we're not talking about on this podcast? That's true. That's that's absolutely true. We've we've never talked about Wall Street. We've never, t- no. you know. I mean, you know, we're, we're you know, <laughs> we're not we're not here talking about the Last Emperor. No, not that those aren't fine films. But we're here talking about Silent Night, Deadly Night Part Two, because it's amazing. It all boils down to there are ways that you're supposed to do things, and oftentimes for very good reason. But if yes. you do things outside of that way, <laughs> <laughs> if you know, if you to use the cliche, go outside the box. Um, there will be a whole swath of people that are going to just point and laugh and say, "Bad, bad, bad," there and are. yet. We're talking about, so 87, this is late 23, so this is 97, 07, 17. So we're like 36, 37 years, (laughs) I think, Yeah. later. That ain't a bad movie, folks. No. That is an entertaining movie. Exactly. I've seen the original Silent Night, Deadly Night at the New Beverly a couple of times. I would love to see Silent Night, Deadly Night parts two and three there. I I would love... Hey New Bev, give us a call. We'll uh we'll 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 program that. We'll come <laughs> down. We'll 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 talk about we'll host it in person. I'll do it. 
Hey, arena, whoever. I'm going Whatever. wherever. Oh, yeah. no, I don't know. American Cinematheque, we're available. Tiki Porno Theater down on Santa Monica <laughs> Boulevard in East uh, Hollywood. We're there. Jumbo's Clown Room, you want to do a special show? We're there for it. Yeah, Jumbo's might be too classy for us, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) They have a velvet rope sometimes. We can't headline a velvet rope facility. (laughs) Uh, Part two picks up four years after the end of the original Silent Night, Deadly Night with Billy's brother, Ricky Caldwell, who's born Ricky Chapman and there's no explanation given for the name change, now committed to a mental hospital for a series of murders that he recently committed. Now, I say four years later because that is theoretically what it should be, but as we'll find out, the chronology of the Silent Night, Deadly Night saga is murky at best. And I'm a chronology guy. Like, I like to know when things are happening. So the way this story goes, in 1971, Billy was five years old and Ricky was one years old. And Billy goes on his Yuletide killing spree in 1984 when he was 18, which would put Ricky at 14. I just want everybody to remember that for later because we're going to come back to it. Uh, Much of this film consists of Ricky being interviewed by psychiatrist Dr. Henry Bloom, a smarmy head shrinker who records his sessions on this giant reel-to-reel tape recorder, despite the fact that cassette tapes were totally common in 1988. Uh, And for his part, my God, Ricky, Ricky, Eric Freeman's Ricky has perfected one facial expression, the derisive sneer. My God, is he amazing. I, this, uh, there's so much to dive into here, Chris. Uh, (laughs) I didn't come to this realization this time until later into this film. But I want to say that uh, here is one mental perspective change, which I think will totally shift his performance for you. Imagine him in Serial Mom by John Waters. (laughs) It's a perfect fucking fit 100 think that that is why i and I, I would suspect many other people love it is because this is wonderful high camp it is gonzo filmmaking um you know whatever intentions were it's always a bit of magic how things turn out right now absolutely i do think that the the tone and the force of this movie though is what winds up changing the clips from one but will I'll, I'll dig into that in a moment. <laughs> well, honestly, to say the, the performance that it most reminded me of, I was thinking about. I'm like, because everything he does is so intense. Mm-hmm. Whether it's glaring, whether it's smoking a cigarette, whether it's more glaring, uh, whatever, it, it's like Elizabeth Berkeley in Showgirls, yeah. where everything, everything is turned up to eleven. Whether it's eating a hamburger or you know having sex in a pool with Kyle MacLachlan, whatever it is. It's turned up to 11. Now, as we get into the story, this interview is happening on Christmas Eve, which I have to think is a ploy by Dr. Bloom to elicit a response from Ricky, given his history. Otherwise, it's the most completely ridiculous thing. Why are you doing this on Christmas Eve? But as Ricky starts to tell his story, we begin this series of flashbacks, which is explicitly designed to use as much footage from the original film as possible. Again, according to director Lee Harry, the producers originally wanted to have no new footage whatsoever, and he fought to have new material. He had been working as an editor for some time for uh, producer Applebaum uh, when the Silent Night, Deadly Night job came his way. 
Um, and in his words, he approached the project as an editorial problem, which I think is just an interesting way to look at it. Sure. So we start with flashbacks to the beginning of Silent Night, Deadly Night, Part 1, when Ricky was a baby. So, so he's literally remembering stuff from when he was an infant, although this kind of gets papered over with the line, Billy told me everything. And we get a reprise of the night where Billy and Ricky's parents were carjacked by a guy dressed as Santa. They were killed. And and that's going to be the pattern for this film is, is we get scenes from the first movie and then we cut back and forth to this insane two-person drama that is going on with Ricky and Dr. Blue. Three-person drama if you count the orderly because there is some just some weird shit going on with the orderly Dr. Bloom and Ricky. It's, it is a an unspoken, a wordless three-person kabuki drama like I've never seen. Yeah, first of all, the doc should have listened to the orderly. Uh, big mistake. It was a big mistake. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting that this film was made by an editor because the way that these clips are edited in and the changes that are made, I think, completely change them. Yes. Um, this scene in the first film, while there are some laugh lines, sure, right? It is one of the more disturbing parts of the film, though. And, and genuinely creepy, genuinely disturbing, especially once the attack has started, right? Yes, absolutely. Because the, the guy dressed as Santa tries to tries to sexually assault the mother. Uh, and then when he is unable to do so, he kills her. It's, it is, in the context of the first film, harrowing in, in its Yeah. And, and in part of that is we've gotten to be with these characters for just a little bit longer. Not that we've, you know, right. we haven't had domestic bliss or anything. The other you thing. You have the whole village to the orphanage with the with the yeah. family. Like this is on the way back. And the other big thing that you're missing is grandpa. Now I realize that yeah. in this film, why you wouldn't include it. And it's, that scene is bonkers and also hilarious. But at the same time, it really does set this very ominous and crazy tone and so and then you have uh in this one ricky's voiceover telling it to the doctor which is also kind of placing it at a remove yes. like over, as you're watching the scenes he's narrating it and talk you know commenting on it, it, it all of this is kind of you know it, it's serving to remove us we are not as emotionally yeah. invested in this in the the violence as we were in the first one um and we're not supposed to be Right. This is no, this is the ramblings of a madman. It, it is kind of showing us, but this, and I'll, and I'll harp on this a few more times. This is the reason to me why it's not actually the greatest hits from part one, because the context, the different score, the editing, sometimes uh, Ricky's voice over, over them. These scenes might have the same footage. They are not the same scenes. Yeah, no, I, I think that's 100% too. I just, I find the whole two-person drama in that room and so much of this movie is just Ricky and Doctor. Like, honestly, I kind of feel like you could do a live stage version of this part of the, like a live stage version for the Hollywood Fringe Festival, Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2 live. And you have actors playing Ricky and the Doctor and then the clips being projected behind them. I'm like, that's a, honestly, that's a kind of crazy idea that actually works in this, in in Los Angeles theater. And it's, uh, the one thing you couldn't do are all of the extreme close-ups of Ricky's eyes and the cigarette and the hands and the stomping of the cigarette and the tape reels. (laughs) And it, it's funny in that, that stuff, it, it really does differ. Like, you know, I mean, obviously the room is the room, but you know, part of it is he's hiding the, the cheapness of that room. Right. But also 
it's um it's funny the the stuff that's a memory is played more real be, you know than the stuff that's in that room right like yeah and, and i mean you have all the stuff at the orphanage you have you have the original mother superior who definitely you know did not have proper psychological training for sure mother superior is a is is not good with kids uh which is a problem cuz she's running an orphanage uh, you know, you get you get a point where you're going into you, Ricky is telling Dr. Bloom about Billy's dreams, not his dreams, but Billy's dreams. And we get actually get a flashback within a flashback. Uh, we do get we do get a replay of one of the best moments of the first film where Billy cold cocks Santa Claus. That is oh, that's absolute classic. That is just wonderful. No matter how you slice it, Chris. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and soon the, the flashbacks moved to when Billy left the orphanage and went to work at Iris Toys, which leads to his Christmas rampage. And the stuff that Ricky, like some of the, you could say, oh, he was present in the orphanage for some of this. And, you know, and his brother told him. But like once he goes to Iris Toys, that stuff Ricky certainly wasn't present for. And Billy couldn't have told him because they don't see each other again in the first film until the final scene. But Rob, it wasn't his fault. Yeah, but Chris, I feel that to jump the gun, and we'll reconnect this later, Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, better watch out, retcons how Ricky knew. It does. Yes. It's because there's there's psychic psychic activity going on. There's psychic activity. And it all, I mean, for those people in the three years between, uh, in the two years between the the second film and the third film, they may have been really confused. But once they saw the third film, they completely understand. Yeah. But the the Iris Toys deaths here, again, um, and I'll try to be quick. It is so Billy-centric in the way that it recuts those scenes that you lose the cat and mouse tension of people being stalked by Billy. So it really right. is presented just as, hey, remember these kills. Um, you're right. it's not actually tense or, you know, it doesn't make you jump. You're just literally watching him go around and then it ha- you know, the, the death happens. In the original film, the, the it's one of the it's one of the workers at Iris Toys. It's the woman yeah. who keeps who keeps saying Mister Sims like very kind of nasally. And there's an amazing cat and mouse sequence where he is chasing her, which then culminates with the the shooting with the arrow. But here you get very little of that. You get the shooting with the arrow, of course, but you lose you lose the context of the cat and mouse. It it, it is essentially like a previously on stretched out to half an hour of footage. I mean, it's, it's, and when we get into the present day for this story, there really are, this is not a film that's doing horror cat and mouse. It's not doing what's around the corner. That is not what this is at all. You were pretty much just solidly with Ricky the whole time. Oh, absolutely. So it's not trying to scare you in that sense at all. It's not using any of the, the, um, you know, techniques to scare you. This is a movie designed to just be a crazy ass thrill ride. Yeah. Like that, that, that's it. It's just, Hey, look at this ridiculous stuff. Like, and, 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 and it's there like the ridiculous, like there's the scene, uh, one of the scenes where Billy, you know, invades a house and, and it's, I, I just keep thinking, you know, there's that tiger painting on the wall in the yeah. rec room downstairs. And I was just like, Oh man, I want that tiger painting so bad. Uh, and you have the scene where Vicky remembers when a bunch of local cops almost shot a random father who was sneaking into the house dressed as Santa. 
Daddy, he's got the line, Daddy almost got his Christmas present early. And I just, I love that you have memories of events that Billy wasn't even present for in his flight. It's amazing. It's just the sheer audacity of it is just, you know, he's got the line. It was something to see. Cops stopping every Santa between here and the state line. Man, you didn't see it. You were in the orphanage, dude. Like, you didn't see that happen. I mean, and in addition to changing the tone and stuff of the clips from part one, which is fine. Like they, they, they feel more like part two, you know, I'm not saying yeah. that they shouldn't have changed them. I'm just saying that I, I feel that they're very different than, and they are in part one, but also, and I think this is where, you know, another, some of the reputation for the footage for part two comes in part two is not a movie going for naturalistic anything. No, no, this no. is like as you say, everything's to eleven, and not just with and not just with our lead either. Frankly, they're like this thing is like just it's trying to have fun and do its thing. But when you cut the beginning of that, and especially his performance with the usually very naturalistic acting in part one, also right. you're juxtaposing that Billy in part one had very very few lines. Right, even though he- where he talked, no, he talks all the time in 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 part one. Yeah, it, it's he's almost this silent killer if you're just watching the part two stuff. Yeah, yeah, and then um, so you're to have that, and then Ricky is so verbose in part two, like while you know, so it it feels very, it, it's creating a contrast that may not always work in its favor. I think for people, right? Um, right, but the thing is, it's fun as hell. Oh God. It's amazing. I love I love the scene where we have the, the reprise of material from part one where the cop shoots a guy in a Santa suit thinking it's Billy as he approaches the orphanage and it turns out to be like the groundskeeper bringing presents to the kids. And then, you know, that is an event that Ricky is there for. But I want to mention, uh, and this is a mistake of the original film, there's no way the kid playing Ricky in those shots is 14. There's no way. I'm not always great with kids' ages. No way that kid is 14. I do love that adult Ricky has the line, poor deaf son of a bitch, to explain why the guy didn't respond to the original cop, which is explained by the nuns in the original movie. (laughs) Oh, my God. And this is a movie, you know, just one last thing before we totally leave part one clips behind. Because you do have (laughs) another one of the, one of, I think, everyone's favorite moments from part one, which is the bloody axe shot, and then the snowman in the background, and then the run up to behead the snowman with the bloody axe. That to me is there's no better kind of um, badge for what the humor in part one is like. Right. Yes. But no one there's no one liner about that. No one comments on it. It's just hilarious, but it happens and it's straight in part two. That would that kind of moment is never allowed to just be. Oh no, there'd be something. There'd be something like you know, sorry, Frosty, or something. Yeah. Frostbite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, at the end of Silent Night, Deadly Night Part One, Billy, dressed as Santa, arrives at the orphanage to wreak vengeance on Mother Superior, but he's shot and killed by a cop at the last minute, and the axe drops at the feet of his brother Ricky. Now. This scene is repeated in Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2, complete with the axe at Ricky's feet. But then a funny thing happens. The camera pans up and there's a cut, which admittedly the filmmakers do their best to hide. And we get an entirely different actor playing young Ricky in that shot. 
who's going to be the actor we have for young Ricky in a few more footage. And and what's funny is neither one looks 14. In fact, Ricky 2.0 looks younger than Ricky from Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 1. <laughs> Back at the hospital, adult Ricky tells Dr. Bloom that after that incident, the orphanage closed and he was placed with a family. The family, Rob, was the Rosenbergs. That's what it is. Who, according to Ricky, they definitely did not get involved with Christmas. Because they were Jewish, Rob. That's why. That's what they, they don't actually say it, but that's the implication in case you didn't pick up on that. And this this leads to one of the, the weirdest sequences, because I think it's the only it's the only scene in the movie that is trying to be played somewhat straight and creepy, even though it is also yes. outlandish and funny because it's treating nuns <laughs> like the shark in Jaws. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he's Ricky is out with his adopted mother and he freaks out when he sees a couple of nuns like walking down the street Um, and you know, like they go with like, he's tugging on his mother's shirt and it's like, you know, and she's like, she's talking to somebody. And then when, when she's looks up, they've uh, you know, ducked into a store and then they come back and you're right. It's like, it's like the shark in jaws. Oh, we're also told by the way that Ricky is 12 at this point. He should be 14. Um, I I just, I don't know the chronology. I want to make it work. I, I, I want to, and it, it doesn't, and it makes me a little crazy. Um, it's narrated by a madman, so you can't take these ages well, and it. dates seriously. Yeah, you're, you're, that's that's got to be it. That's that's got to be my own headcanon yeah. for for why it doesn't all match up. Because next we're told we jump ahead. We're told it's five years later, and we get another actor playing Ricky. So this brings us up, Rob, to five Rickies in this movie. There's infant Ricky. There's there's the Ricky from Silent Night, Deadly Night Part One. There's there's twelve year old Ricky from Silent Night, Deadly Night Part Two. There's teenage. There's seventeen year old Ricky, and there's adult Ricky. There are five. You know, there's two mother superiors, but there's five Rickies. <laughs> I give this movie five Rickies. <laughs> yep, that that tracks. <laughs> Uh, absolutely. He's supposed to be 17 now, although if you follow the original movie's chronology, uh, the Ricky who is telling the story in the hospital should be 18. So he has a big physical change between 17 and 18. That's a heck of a, you know, he really, he grows up a bit. Yeah, that was his year down on uh, lifting weights at Gold's on uh, in Venice, yeah. <laughs> so Ricky's adoptive father dies, and Ricky goes for a walk out in a field somewhere, and, and judging by the clothes... This walk happens immediately after the funeral because he's wearing the same like tie and everything that he wore at the funeral scene. And he comes across this couple having a picnic in a random field. And at first, at first, the guy, he he caresses the girl's neck with a beer can. Um, But then he decides he wants some more and he starts to assault her. And it just, again, it all escalates so quickly. Like the movie that I think of the most with is Showgirls. That's the movie that I connect with this because it just all of all escalates so quickly. And Ricky, he's watching from the bushes and he is starting to have flashes of the Santa who attacked and murdered his mother. And um, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. And uh, when when you come out of this scene, right, to uh, to the room with the doctor recounting the story, when my favorite moment is when Ricky peeks over the doctor's shoulder looking at his notes and he says, Red car. Good point. Good point. <laughs> because the guy had a red car. The oh guy my. he had a red Jeep and, and 17-year-old Ricky gets in the Jeep and runs the guy over. 
Like he just flat out, he runs him over. And then the woman comes up to Ricky and says, thank you. <laughs> yes. And they have the bit with the red car. But before that, you're back in the room. And what I, one of my favorite moments in the whole movie is Dr. Bloom looks up from his notes. He's writing notes. Oh. He looks up. <laughs> yeah. And, and Ricky, it's like Ricky's gone. And there's a look on the doctor's face for a moment like, oh, no, where's he gone? And then Ricky's face comes in quickly on the right-hand side of the frame, going too fast for you, Doc. What, is he a ninja? Like, how? Like if he was right there, how did the doctor, <laughs> how did the doctor not see him right there? It is like Mel Brooks took over the movie for just that bit. <laughs> It's amazing. Yes. It, it is it is genuinely amazing. Um, uh, and, and and of course Ricky is triggered by the color red, which is of course the color of Santa's traditional suit, although in England sometimes he wears green. Um so maybe there's a there's an English version Santa's of Silent Night, Deadly watching. Night where Yeah, you wouldn't get Santa's watch either with like Father Christmas. Father is Christmas. I don't know. Well, how would you do it over there? Father Christmas is peeping. Oh, my God. Uh, so so we jump ahead again, and 17-year-old Ricky is gone, replaced by 18-year-old Ricky, who's the actor we've been watching in the hospital scenes. And he gets a job at a restaurant where one night he's taken out the trash, Rob, and he comes across the world's worst loan shark. <laughs> yes. Like, this guy is telling the dude, he's like, I hope I don't pay. I hope you don't pay so I can kill you. I'm like, What? That's that's not how that business works. Like, you want the guy to pay you back. You don't want to have to break his legs. Like, oh, I want to kill you. I hope you're not so stupid. And <laughs> Ricky steps in, and there's a big fight in an alley. Um, and Ricky kills the loan shark by plunging an umbrella through his stomach. Apparently, Rob, this scene was more graphic with, like, the guy's guts coming out, but they scaled it back, you know, for the kids. But... You do get the wonderful comic uh, opening of the umbrella once it's impaled through the guy and it goes shook, and you get you get the umbrella complete with all the blood on it. And then it starts to rain a little bit. It's like yeah. after the umbrella is open, it starts to rain. It's perfect. It's perfect. This movie's amazing. And, and you know, if you can't have fun with it, I, I my God, I, I, I feel sorry for you. And it's it's shortly after this that I believe when we're back in the room, Chris. I believe when we're back in the room, we get a split diopter shot. That's right. Oh, where? Oh my uh, God! Ricky's on the. And I, I don't. I couldn't tell for certain, but because Ricky's on the, the line was very hidden. But look, Ricky's on the left foreground. The doctor isn't back on the right, and they're both in focus. But oh. Ricky's shoulders are not in focus. With like where it would be past the line of the split diopter, that shoulder. Right. So it, it, and I don't like that. The shoulder wouldn't be closer, that much closer or further away than his face. And if it's deep focus, that shoulder should be in focus, but I couldn't, right. I couldn't spot the line. Now I know later some of those, you know, those lenses got better and there wasn't a, just a shunk line on it. So maybe not, but, uh, I did no research as per usual, And, uh, <laughs> We're just going to print the legend. Split diopter shot. I, I love it. Deadly Night I Part 2. I love two. it. Alan J. Pakula, eat your heart out. Yep. 
<laughs> uh, I love that when when um, Doctor Bloom doesn't know about like he's he's finding out that he's murders for the first time and he's really starting to sweat like he's really starting to get nervous and you can see the sweat beating up on the actor's forehead again a Mel Brooks amount of sweat on the forehead <laughs> a Mel Brooks amount of sweat but then you cut to the next shot and his forehead's completely, completely dry. dry yeah yeah <laughs> they only had money for sweat in one shot Chris. <laughs> You know these things are done close to the bone. It's yeah. uh, it's not a uh, you know it's this is not some some big you know studio production. Rob, now we get to Jennifer. Jennifer is amazing. Jennifer is the girl that Ricky meets and falls in love with, and the doctor has a picture of Jennifer, which is clearly it's clearly the actress's headshot. Like it looks like it came off the wall of her local dry cleaners. Yeah, it, it, if only it had been autographed. Actually, it would have been better. <laughs> there is, there's like a two Ricky, but well, in, the, yes, in the top I left corner, to, two Ricky. I meant to the dry cleaners, but yes, <laughs> <laughs> like like a headshot autograph. Uh, Ricky in the flashbacks, by the way. Is uh is riding a motorcycle with a black leather jacket at this point. He looks like he's cosplaying James Hurley from Twin Peaks. Yeah, but uh, we won't we won't have any real Twin Peaks action until our next film. Oh, we, uh, we have a <laughs> that's just a little taste of the Twin Peaks action to come. My God, uh, so they have a meet cute where she hits his car. Uh, like she hits his bike with her car and it's like the one time he isn't set off by something. And she gets out of the car. We see her legs. While the soundtrack gives us some classic 80s sexy sax. And um, what I want to point out is that she doesn't say anything. She has no lines in this part of the movie. They just like, it's just shots of them on the motorcycle together, which were apparently all shot in Griffith Park without permits. I believe that because, yeah, this definitely is not Utah anymore. That much I know. No. No, the first film was shot in Utah. The uh, the second film uh, was clearly both second and third films were shot in the Los Angeles area. Yeah, and I I know for certain part four was as well, even though we're not getting into it. Uh, right. <laughs> part five, to- um, the toy maker is my blind spot still in the series. So I have not seen part four or five. Yeah, part four is amazing. Uh, but, but but there's always next. There's Christmas always next show. Christmas. <laughs> Um, we get a little bit of sexy time nudity, and it's not until the movie theater scene that Jennifer actually gets to speak. Now, Rob, the movie theater scene is incredible. It's incredible. And I'm going to I'm gonna tease something that doesn't happen for a little bit because this movie theater scene is a very long one. It is. But um, what I want to say is that my favorite part about Jennifer is that it gets us Chip. <laughs> Her ex-boyfriend. Yeah, well, I know we're not to yes. him yet because we get we get multiple doofy in this scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they're in they're in this movie there, which is the smallest movie theater around. Apparently, it was a company's screening room in Los Angeles. Uh, there's an obnoxious guy behind them who keeps just shouting stuff at the screen, and when they go to kiss, he makes. Kissy noises, and uh, the director Lee Harry is his buddy sitting next to him who doesn't say anything. Um, and and Ricky, he's into the trailers because there you hear fights, you hear one a trailer for something called Chaos the movie, uh, which I'm just like that's amazing. Uh, but apparently Jennifer picked the movie because Ricky has no idea what it's about until it starts, until he learns what the movie's about, and in perhaps the most amazing meta scene. In cinema history, 
they once again reuse material from the original film as the film within the film. It's a different scene, this time of Santa robbing a gas station. Rob, the sheer audacity of it. And what I love about it is that he is so enraptured by this scene, right? (laughs) Of course it is. It's the Billy Chapman story. Yeah, and the thing is, she was she's all weirded out about like, oh, you like this kind of thing? Uh, like with the trailers before, like the violence, whatever. Yeah. But then she is super into this movie too. And she's the one who picked it. So I'm like, how is the chaos, the movie trailer worse than this lady? What's up with you girl? Like, I don't know. I don't understand Jennifer. What's, what's going on. But uh, Ricky, Ricky does have to go shut up the guy in the back row. So he uses the same like ninja skills that he's used to sneak up on Dr. Bloom on the guy And he kills the guy in the back row, but that's when we have the opportunity, while he's off killing the guy in the back row, to meet Chip. the back row, which is like three rows behind them. There's one row between them. It's it's, it's Ricky and Jennifer, there's one empty row, and then there's the guy in the back, in the very back of the screen. And and yeah, this whole theater's maybe four rows. Uh, (laughs) Tops. Yeah. Um, Tops. So he kills him very quietly, I guess. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, you'd see him struggling in the back, but then Chip. Oh my God, Chip. I'd like to see you again. For your sake. Oh, lucky me. What have I done to deserve this treatment? What haven't you done, Chip? Wait a minute. Is this the same girl who pledged eternal love on the back seat of my car? If you ever tell anybody about that, I will kill you. Don't worry. It's our little secret. Go away. Hey, I'm trying to give you another chance. Great. You stood me up. You cheated on me. You ruined my best sweater. And I would rather die before I go out with you again. What are you trying to say? My favorite doofus he should have been he should have been in every 80s comedy oh yeah no he's like a 67th string william zapka yeah yeah i i just imagined him like popping up at the yacht club in one crazy summer as one of the jerks or something <laughs> like yeah. yes yeah. yes absolutely or you know like a ski guy in in uh in in what is it better off dead better you off know, dead like, or ski patrol <laughs> i mean but we, there, or there's ski so patrol. many <laughs> or hot dog the movie I can sit here all day. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Oh, eighty. We'll do a whole. We'll going to do an eighty sex comedy series at some point. My goodness, and never stop doing it. I think because that's oh, a, it'll be going wrong forever. Give, that might give the Giallo series a run for its money. Frankly. Oh, <laughs> we have that. Just introduces the scene with like Chip is just introduced in the movie theater scene, but then we need a Chip again, and he and Ricky get into a confrontation. It's a mistake for Chip that his car is red. Old red here. Oh, man. And we get oh. the most amazing. <laughs> I mean, this this death is, is. Oh, my God. This I actually think for me, this is funnier than Garbage Day. It, it is because it's it's the thing about Garbage Day, which we'll get to shortly, is the shock of it. It's like it happens so quick. And then it's like garbage day but here it's like a prolonged thing like so much so that you'll notice that chip awkwardly puts on his sunglasses 
just before Ricky, <laughs> basically, and I, 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 I passed over what Ricky actually does. He, he hooks up Chip's tongue to the car battery of his car and electrocutes him. But before that happens, Chip kind of awkwardly puts on his sunglasses. And apparently they had already done the special effect with like the, 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 with the, like with a dummy and the sunglasses. And they realized when they were shooting the scene with Chip afterwards, oh shit, he doesn't have sunglasses. We need an insert shot of him putting his sunglasses on because it's the sunglasses that explode in the special effect shot. Oh yeah. And they certainly didn't have money to reshoot with the sunglasses. No, no, no. And, and, and Jennifer is understandably upset by that. Like this is, that's upset. Like, yeah, it's her ex-boyfriend, but she still doesn't want to see him get fried but she starts berating ricky before ricky turns his fury on her and i love that she realizes her mistake with a perfectly timed oh yeah <laughs> before she tries to run and ricky catches her and kills her it is like a looney tunes uh-oh and the timing is so <laughs> perfect with it it's so perfect it's amazing it is amazing uh, and now, like, now that Ricky's, Jennifer's dead, he killed her, and now Ricky is just going to go on his big rampage. Uh, he kills a rent-a-cop uh, by, by, you know, who tries to shoot him, but he points the gun at the rent-a-cop's head. Now he's got a gun, and he just starts plugging people in the neighborhood, leading to that signature moment when he comes across a guy taking out the trash and says, Carpet Day! Huh? No! Garbage day. Garbage day. <laughs> and I will say, Chris, uh, garbage day, besides being an amazing moment in cinema history, it is also a pivotal moment in this story. It is the first time in this movie, at least, that Ricky actually kind of kills someone who didn't have it coming by his own rules. Right. In some way or another. Through his twisted logic. It, yes, through his twisted logic. Because the Renicop had seen what happened when he killed the other guy and was coming after him. So that was, while he was himself was innocent, like he was a direct threat to Ricky at that point. This is just right. a dude who comes out with his garbage to put it on, on out on the he's street. He's the second random guy that he's plugged. It's like, it was one guy who was picking up his paper, but he didn't say, paper's here! Yeah. So he this is the moment when he's in the suburban neighborhood and he just starts plugging people and then it escalates post garbage day into something quite oh big. Oh my god. Well, he takes out this car that's yeah. coming at him and he takes it out with two shots and holy shit does that car get close to that stuntman. Like holy shit. It is an inch or two from his shoulder from taking him out. Yeah. And according to the director, that, that is actually, they they were apparently far down the street and shooting with a long lens. So they didn't know until they saw like the daily footage, how close that car came oh, man. to the stunt, stunt coordinator. It's just, it's bananas. It's just, <laughs> wow. But Ricky does get the line after he shoots it. He says, bingo. And that's when the car flips and then explodes. Explodes. <laughs> uh, and, and Ricky is, is stopped because he, he, uh, he is taken into custody by uh, by some uniformed police officers. I will say this. I went back and counted. Uh, they they actually have, he actually fires six shots, is which, which is what the revolver could hold before being taken custody by police. Like he, he puts the gun up to his head like he's going to shoot, but he's already fired six shots. Unlike much bigger budget movies that don't keep track of their ammunition, this one at least, you know, it had that six shots right. You know, I, I'll... 
it gets that. <laughs> so, so Ricky's now. This is this was presumably just prior to his interview with Doctor Bloom. Although he had, met, as as he mentions, oh yeah, I met with other therapists before. You're the thirteenth. Well, that's my lucky number. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, back in the hospital. Ricky is still talking, but we pan over to reveal that he's killed Dr. Bloom. I guess he shouldn't have been such a dick to the orderly. Uh, and Ricky escapes. And and he kills a random dude in a Santa suit because he needed to get Ricky in that Santa suit like his brother before he gets his final vengeance on Mother Superior. And as you mentioned earlier, they, they have the audacity to recast. Well, they weren't getting that angle. Which back. then clearly they thought, well, we're going to, I know how we can cover this up. I know how people won't notice that it's a different actress. I oh God, it. Rob! It's amazing! It's amazing! It's amazing! Like they 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 mentioned that she's had a stroke, and you know she's in a wheelchair. Which she was in a wheelchair in the the final scenes of of Silent Night, Deadly Night Part One. But like you know, and and some people who have strokes, their face you know there's there's a certain they lose muscle control of their face. But holy shit, she looks fucking deformed. Yeah, like she looks like. Two-Face, and not the Aaron Eckhart Two-Face. She looks like the Tommy Lee Jones Two-Face. Yeah, a stroke does not turn you into a Morlock, um, <laughs> is all I can think. It but it's is just crazy. Half. It's only it's a just half. half. Yeah. <laughs> the other half is fine. Oh, my God. It's amazing. And, and Ricky finds her living in a house numbered 666. And he chops through the door with an axe like he's Jack Torrance. I mean, I'm shocked he didn't say... Here's Ricky, or or here's Santa. Like that. Why didn't that happen? My God, do it. Just go all the way. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it, it essentially happens. This scene is. I mean, <laughs> it does. Whatever pretense of of reality suspension of disbelief has now just been shredded, and they they assume <laughs> after you've got, come this far that you are on board. And holy smokes, is this chase through the house after Mother Superior so fun? It's amazing, especially considering that one of the one of the chase people is in a wheelchair. So it should be fairly short, but it's not. It goes on and it's multiple levels. I noticed she has an upstairs wheelchair and a downstairs wheelchair, which I guess makes sense. I think maybe she's got a chairlift that, you know, one of those one of those things. Um and she's still a bitch after all these years, man. Like she is, she is not nice. No, time has not no. softened Mother Superior. The fact that this maniac is around to kill her has not softened Mother Superior. She is just gonna no. To thine own self be true is her credo. Oh no sure. shit! <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he he chucks her down the stairs, but that, it's still not over yet. And then you know, like you see him, he raises the axe above his head, and and you you don't see what happens. And then you get a minute later, like the cops all come in, and I notice with the cops, there's three uniformed cops that come in the house. Rob, they are the same three cops that busted Ricky on the street in the suburbs. Like they are the same one. They're the same three dudes. We have come full circle, <laughs> or. Or we could only afford three cops. There it is. There yeah. it is. <laughs> so, and they come up and you see Mother Superior sitting at this table and they come up and they kind of like, she looks fine. 
And then her head falls right off. And it's like, it's funny because like her head, when you see it sitting at the table, looks okay. But then when you see it sitting on the, like on the floor, it's like bloody and stuff. It's like, oh shit. That's uh you know, and then Ricky is there. Like he comes out of the shadows and, you know, the cops shoot him a bunch of times before he crashes through the window. But as the camera pans over to his body, his eyes snap open and it's, it's amazing. Like Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2, I, I think in some ways is the ultimate exploitation film because it's not just exploiting the slasher movie trend of the 80s it is literally repurposing much of its footage from its predecessor and and while the notion of that seems very craven it's undeniably entertaining like it's ridiculous but it is entertaining as hell yeah and honestly should be taught in film class because when you look at those scenes in part one and how different they are in part two it really shows that you know in part two they're they're edited much quicker, which makes sense because they're condensing things. Sure. Um, so so it's a much much faster pace. This the score is different. Um, God, the score that they put in the sledding scene is just unimaginable. <laughs> like <where they're, laughs> at one point it's like happy good fun times where they're like yeah we're sledding music. I'm like really this is a choice. But um in any event it's it's all just plays so differently and um you know. Sometimes, Chris, you give people what they want. I think, yeah, <laughs> and part I mean, two I, and, gives the people what they want. And and the truth is that you know, director Lee Harry, who was was a, you know primarily an editor and was just looking for work, you know, he got a fairly crappy assignment, and he was able to turn it into something totally bizarre and totally fun. And you know, it it led to another Silent Night and Deadly Night movie, or or several more. We'll we'll get into that in a minute. How many fourteen year olds do you think are watching on Golden Pond this year? <laughs> Probably fewer wow. than Silent well, Night fewer, Deadly Night Part fewer, Two. Fewer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the the strangest thing about this movie is the fact that it was released in April of nineteen eighty seven. Why do you release a Silent Night Deadly Night movie in the spring? Like all the other movies in the series came out in November, which makes sense for Christmas horror. Maybe they're getting in on the early Christmas in July. I don't know. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess they did have the videotape out by it by November, so you could, you know, it was kind of a lost oh, leader. Yeah, the film the film had a budget of two hundred and fifty thousand, but it only managed to pull in about one hundred and fifty thousand in its very brief theatrical release. But Rob, the story doesn't end there. So in September of 1987, a company called IVE, International Video Entertainment, released but re-released the first movie and released the second film on home video, specifically VHS. And I remember both of those video boxes. I mean, my parents wouldn't let me rent them at the time. It wasn't until later. But like the, the arm, Santa's arm coming out of the chimney with the axe for the first one, and then the Christmas ornament with the with the pistol for the second one, in like it reflected in the Christmas ornament. They were classic, classic video boxes. I, I often wonder at the time, because those images were terrifying to me when I was a yeah. child, even though I would watch some horror movies. But there's there was a whole swath that I couldn't get to until later for me. You know, and usually the more quote unquote, you know, hardcore ones. I wonder if I had seen it then, would I have gotten the humor? Would I have laughed? I don't know. I don't know. I think I probably would have just been like scared. Yeah, because I didn't see either of these till much later. Like I saw like the Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street movies, but like I didn't see either of these until much, much later. And and yeah, I don't know. Like But in my mind, it, it was that that cover put it in the same category in the VHS in the video store for me as like um The Hills Have Eyes or something. 
which is sure. totally not the case. But right. you're just no. looking at the box. You're just looking yeah. at the box. It's funny because I remember, like, I remember VHS boxes really well. Like some of the old clamshell ones, like all the Dirty Harry movies. Like I never rented them. Like I wasn't allowed to rent those. But like they were all the James Bond movies. Those I could rent. Um, the release of those movies, both Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 1 and 2 on VHS and the success of those VHS releases prompted IVE to want to make a third. Now, rather than dealing with the producers of the earlier films, they simply bought the sequel rights to Silent Night, Deadly Night and set about making it themselves. And if you think Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2 was as weird as this series could get, then you better watch out for Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 3. Better watch out. Enter a world of dreams. Laura, tell me what you saw in your dream. I told you, Dr. Newberry. Santa Claus. A world of silence. Subject may be making contact. I don't want to see the future or the past. I just want to be normal. A world of madness. No one is normal. A world that can't be ignored. She likes it, loves it. She can't resist it. She wants to penetrate his mind, see what he sees. He was a little boy, and then something happened, something terrible. Because when the dream is over... I don't know what's going on here, but whatever it is... The nightmare begins. The Yuletide terror returns. His brain was surgically reconstructed. You don't mind my saying I'd have pulled his plug. Even his life was a value. With the saga that shocked a nation. Robert Culp, Silent Night, Deadly Night, Part 3, Better Watch Out. Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, Better Watch Out was directed and co-written by Monty Hellman, of all people, a protege of Roger Corman. He directed films like Tulane Blacktop and, of course, Cockfighter. Uh, He wrote the script along with Carlos Laszlo, producer Arthur Gorson, and an uncredited Stephen Gatos. Uh, And the film was produced by Arthur Gorson, as well as executive produced by Ronna Wallace and Richard Gladstein. We're going to come back to some of those names later because they are important. Uh, We should say at the outset that this film did not make the liberal use of footage from the first film that the second one did. There's a couple of flashback clips, but nothing like what part two did. But that said, it is totally, totally bonkers in its own way. Chris, this movie. (laughs) Oh, my God. This movie. This movie. And I, I love Monty Hellman. And if, if you know, if you've watched three of his films like I have, you'll know <laughs> that his films can also often be dreamlike and they're not necessarily always concerned with um, the super logic of the regular world. Right. Um, you know, Tulane Blacktop is a little less so, but there is kind of a, a dreamy quality and all the desert stuff. And it's, it's a little timeless right. and weird in that way. Uh, this movie is completely bonkers. Uh, Road to Nowhere. Yeah, Road to Nowhere is 20, 2010 film um, about like a filmmaker making a film and all this weird stuff's happening is like 100% playing with like what is real and what isn't. And all of that is in there. All of the artistry is in here. It even opens kind of with a moment like that. And yet this movie is also and simultaneously just a quickie made for video cash grab. It is doing Absolutely. both things 
simultaneously, maybe not the same in every scene, but like, it's amazing to me that he is doing what he wants, but he is also delivering what is wanted by the company. Because most people are like, oh, haha, if they're doing like, I'm going to sneak all my stuff in and I won't give you what you want. He did both. It is amazing. He did both. And and I, according to Gatos, in an interview I saw with him, he said, you know, he said that um, – that Hellman had to be kind of dragged into making it. Like he didn't really want to do it. But then once he signed on for it, he gave it everything he had. And he described it as, I swear to God, apparently this is Monty Hellman said of Silent Night, Deadly Night, part three, better watch out. It's, this is my beauty and the beast. Oh, (laughs) I can see it. Yes, I can see it. Um, Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 3, Better Watch Out, sees Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 actor Bill Mosley take over the role of Ricky, alongside Samantha Scully, Richard Beamer, Eric Dare, and Laura Herring, as well as Robert Culp. Now, the first thing we need to do, Rob, the first thing we need to do is acknowledge the number of David Lynch connections in this cast. Yeah. Richard Beamer, who became famous playing Tony in West Side Story, would play Benjamin Horn on Twin Peaks. Eric Dare would play Leo Johnson in that same series. And and given that both the, the main character is named Laura and everybody says that name over and over again... I keep, I can't, I, I start having Twin Peaks flashbacks. I'm like, I started hearing Waldo the Minor Bird say, Laura, Laura, don't go there. <laughs> don't go there. I'm like, I'm freaking out. And these would have been almost back to back for him. As a matter of fact, I looked it up. Okay. Because the Twin Peaks pilot was shot in February and March of 1989. The series wouldn't go into production until later that year, but the the pilot movie was shot in February and March. Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 3 was shot in April of 1989. So it's basically back to back, just enough time for Eric Dalry to dye his hair blonde. Yeah, and um, Richard Beamer, he is a phone book actor for me. I mean, he is one of those guys I could just watch, read the phone book and his voice. And like, I want his one man, a Christmas Carol. I want to hear him. (laughs) That would be amazing. The telltale heart. Like, I just want to hear this guy Ah! say words. It is like, and maybe we could get him on. Well, I know we can't, but maybe we could get him on stage with James Earl Jones and, um, and uh, Keith David. That would be, Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. No, he's got an amazing voice. Uh, I also want to mention that Laura Herring would go on to co-star in David Lynch's 2001 film, Mulholland Drive. Ooh, so many David Lynch connections. And you know, there's a Rob Lamorgis connection with this. Oh, is there? Yeah. In my old neighborhood, one day I was driving and I stopped at a four-way stop sign and then another car stopped. And then I started to go, but the other car started to go. And then I sped up because that's where I was in life at that time. (laughs) And then the other car had to screech on its brakes and laid on the horn and flipped me off the bird. And I, when I went to angrily flip off the bird to the other driver, I saw Chop Top staring back at me. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) That's right. Bill Mosley himself. And here's- Wow. I can tell you three things with great, <laughs> great certainty, Chris. Please. Number one, he very clearly 
did not see me and thought that he had got there first and that I ran the stop sign. Sure. Number two, the other thing I can tell you with great certainty is that it was 100% Bill Mosley and not someone who looks like him because holy motherfucking shit, you do not not recognize sure, no. that man in real life. And number three, the futility of road rage is what I also discovered because in one moment- <laughs> I was enraged at the injustice of someone trying to sneak through the stop sign in the wrong order, and my blood was boiling. And then literally within a split second, when you see Chop Top angrily honking and flipping you off in like his (laughs) regular sedan, and then I just can't help but smile and laugh. And that's when you realize (laughs) that all that road stuff really didn't matter. Why did you get mad about it? That's amazing. That is amazing. So, Bill, this is not this is not a story about what a what a jerk Bill Mosley was. He was not a jerk. It's just one of those things that happens <laughs> that I find hilarious. <laughs> and I'm sure he does not remember because oh, no. to him it was Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As our listeners may guess, Ricky survived his encounter with the police at the end of the second film and has now spent the last six years in a coma, which means that either the year is 1994 or 1996, depending on Ricky's actual age in part one. I also want to mention that despite what it says on the home video box and poster, the opening titles have a three in Roman numerals because it's classier, Rob. You know the Roman numerals, it's classier. I also want to mention one other technical point that this film was expressly made for home video at a time when TVs had a 4-3 aspect ratio. So that is how this movie was shot. And I'm genuinely glad that Lionsgate in their home video release did not crop it to 16-9. I think that's great. Like, leave it whatever the original aspect ratio was. That's the way to go. And frankly, I mean, part of this, I don't think they had a choice. When you, like... Academy ratio was good enough for Casablanca. Ronnie <laughs> Coleman uses this whole frame. There, there are whole yeah, swaths it, of this movie that if you tried to put it in 16 by 9, it would it would look like nonsense. Which would not stop a, a, a company true. thinking, oh yeah, people want it, you know, people want it and fill their HD TVs. Yeah. You open with this image of a young woman, Laura, asleep, and she wakes up and in a hospital bed nearby, also sleeping is Ricky. Now this is where we get into one of the most bizarre images in cinema history. The top of Ricky's head has been removed and replaced with a transparent dome. And we can see the brain with some liquid swashing around inside the dome. And it's, we, this is how he is through the whole movie. And I can't, I can't, it's the most bizarre image. I mean, we just see it again and again. I'm like this, the fucking brain in a dome. It's amazing. This movie is <laughs> 70s new Hollywood. It's 80s made for video quickie. It's yep. also part Spock's brain. I mean, it is <laughs> everything. And it's, I, it brain and brain. What is brain? It shouldn't work. I can't sit here in good conscience and tell an audience full of people that it does work, but I could not take my eyes off. I've seen this movie more than once. I have se- I, as have I. I have seen this movie more than once. I own this movie on Blu-ray disc because that is I own the whole saga on Blu-ray disc now, Rob. What? That's the that's my life. That's what I that you know what? If I've achieved nothing else, I have achieved that. I have all four Five, all five Silent Night, Deadly Nights on blue in the highest. No, you don't have to. You don't have to l- listen to those late night ads on Tubi. It's good. 
Um, so Laura is played by Samantha Scully, who I, I have not seen anything else, but she very, bears a very strong resemblance to Jennifer Connelly of that same era. Oh, I, I think you did see her in something else. Oh, I, what is that? that? She had a very, very short career. Uh, have you seen The Best of the Best? Starring oh Eric my Roberts. god! Yeah, she's she's the female oh, lead in that. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah, that, oh that, that's god. really the other really major uh, film. And there there were a few more after, but very short career, at least for uh, on IMDb. Well, clearly someone said, "Get me in a get me a Jennifer Connelly type." Like that was yeah. clearly the the remit, and 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 you know that's not a bad thing. Um, Ricky wakes up and and instantly he threatens Laura with a scalpel and and there's this prolonged chase scene through this very stark white hospital, which I'll give it this: the movie's not trying to convince you that it's not a dream. Like it goes on for a while, yeah. but it's it's obviously a dream. Yeah, this is not Nightmare on Elm Street where they're trying to trick you for a while. Um, right. It's in. You are supposed to know it's a dream because what this movie is going to be doing with the, the psychic powers stuff, which we're about to come up to very, very quickly <laughs> with all of this, not that it's really explained at all, but um, it, so it feels more like kind of the dream in imagery and something like scanners or something like that, yeah. where it is, it's not trying to fool you. Um, and it's not trying to create elaborate dreamscapes either. It's weird. It's both. Yeah. And she's chased by Ricky through the hallways. Like she's always enters doors with multiple rooms. And it's always like this, you know, like the first door she tries is always the locked one. And then there's, but there's always one that's open. And then finally she comes across Santa Claus who like, again, very dreamlike beckons her to come sit on his lap, which she does. And she starts to tell Santa all the things she wants for Christmas. He pulls out a blood covered knife and, you know, is about to stab her. And then she wakes up and it's, <laughs> And it turns out that Laura is not only, first of all, in real life, she's blind, but she's also psychic. And Dr. Newberry, played by Richard Beamer, is trying to use her abilities to contact Ricky in his dreams. I'm not sure why. Like, is there any other coma patients you could try this on who aren't homicidal maniacs? I don't know. But that is the, that's the thing. Yeah. And and the way Beamer plays him is sinister at the outset. It is very sinister at the outset. And some of that is because of the era. I just assume he is evil Benjamin Horn, right? Right, Although exactly. Even Benjamin Horn got humanized down, down the road a little bit. But, um, well, you know, after after all that time re reliving the Civil War, yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> he, um, but it's interesting because then as, as this movie goes on, and it's not, I mean, the performance doesn't change, but what they, the material they give him changes. Yes. He seems to become increasingly poetic about everything. Yes. Where, you know, and you look at some of the these opening monologues that play a little creepier, right? When he's with the assistant. Um, yep. And it, it does play more sinister. But when you realize, I guess he is just conducting pure research here. There's no ulterior motive. He doesn't have the plan to take over the world with Ricky mind powers or anything. <laughs> I'm like, oh, he really is well, just, and, you know, like he, he does things like talk. He's got this little micro cassette recorder, which I guess the recording technology has progressed since the giant reel to reel part two. And he keeps making notes about, he thinks Laura's playing games with him and he doesn't trust her, but he's doing it when she's in the room. Yeah. Like, dude, she's not deaf. She's blind. His attempts at reverse psychology are also pretty thin. Uh, when she says she doesn't, 
She's not sure if she wants to do this anymore. Um, so Laura and her brother, they're, it's Christmas Eve. Of course it's Christmas Eve, Rob. Uh, and Laura and her brother are going to celebrate Christmas with their grandmother in Piru, which is a town in Ventura County, California, just north of Los Angeles. Uh, Dr. Newberry mistakes it for Peru because apparently he's a moron. Yeah. <laughs> He tells his assistant, like, oh, she's got an old soul who will let me go as deep as I want, which is honestly sounds like something Ben Horn would say. I mean, that whole speech is amazing. <laughs> you think she made contact? I think that she's playing little girl games. Her body may be young, but her soul is old. Older than we can imagine. You think she'll come back? She's gone too far. She'll be back. And then she'll let me go as deep as I want. She likes it. Loves it. Knowledge. She can't resist it. She wants to penetrate his mind. See what he sees. The way that he sees it. It really is. I mean, the, it it really she'll is. let me go as deep as I want. I mean, the, I, I don't even, it's it's so entendre that I just don't <laughs> even know what to do with it. Especially because it's seemingly, he meant it only the, the literal surface way. Just, yeah. yeah, he wants to get into her brain so she can contact Ricky. And, and yeah. So she's waiting. She's waiting to be picked up by her brother, Chris. And Laura has this vision. She has an encounter on the way out with a really bitchy receptionist who Laura sees a a vision of her having been murdered. And as she leaves, she gives the receptionist just the best parting shot. Merry Christmas. Not for you. It's amazing. And true. And true. Yeah, it's not she's not be lying. She's not giving lady. her a warning, but she's just like, oh, you know. Uh, can we talk about Eric Dari's hair in this movie? Because it's amazing. It's like long, in, in Twin Peaks, it's just like long and jet black and it's tied back in a ponytail most of the time. Here, it's like, it's got like, it, it's blonde. It's clearly dyed blonde. Uh, it's like a, got like a, like it's kind of perm. There is body. There is a wave to it. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty glorious. It's it is absolutely glorious. And sure enough, because it's Christmas Eve and there, there's a Santa Claus in the hospital and because this is Silent Night Deadly Night, the Santa Claus is a boozy, horny Santa who proceeds to taunt the comatose Ricky until he wakes the fuck up and kills his Kringle ass. It's amazing. Now, Rob, I have a big criticism on this movie. It's big. So he kills the Santa in, in the hospital, right? Sure. Ricky kills the Santa. He wakes up from his coma, kills the Santa. Got to get that Santa suit. Got to get that Santa suit. Why doesn't he take the Santa suit? <laughs> Why didn't they have Ricky take the Santa suit? He spends the next part of the movie walking around in a hospital gown with his ass hanging out and a glass dome on his head. And then like later, he's got regular clothes and like a knit cap. Put him in the fucking Santa suit. It's Silent Night, Deadly Night, for God's sakes. Chris, Chris. <sighs> yes. Sometimes <laughs> you want Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2 because you want a movie to give you what you want. But sometimes, Chris, just sometimes, 
a movie should give you what you need. I needed Ricky in a Santa suit. Oh, I you could have a- put the thing, the hat over his domed head. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do get a hat over the domed head. It's just not a Santa hat, <laughs> which is amazing. Oh my god, the shots of that are amazing. So Laura goes to see her psychiatrist, who is honestly terrible at his job. And and we learned that her parents died in a plane crash and she's been having visions of ever since she was a child. And she's kind of sick of it because, and, and I quote, she doesn't want to see the future or the past or anything weird. She's just done with it. She's, she's over it. Which is a tough spot to be in when you're starring in Silent Night, <laughs> Deadly Night 3. Better watch out because you're going to see all of Better those things. Wa- you're going to see the future, so, the past, and weird ass And something stuff. weird. Yeah. So Ricky escapes from the hospital in, in, in his hospital gown and, and he kills the bitchy receptionist on the way out. Uh, and because of his psychic link with Laura, he knows where she's headed. He knows she's going to Pyru. So he starts hitchhiking up to Pyru with a glass dome on his head. That's in one of my favorite shots in the movie. It's amazing. It's, it's, the it's dome. amazing. He's got the hospital gown, the dome, and he's got his thumb out. In front of the Pyru Lake Pyru. He's actually pretty close because he's only now one mile from Lake Pyru. Well, yeah. Now we need to talk about geography, Rob, because there's I have I have I have all kinds of well, first of all, okay. We're gonna talk about geography in a second, but first, Laura and Chris are leaving for grandma's house along with Chris's new girlfriend, Jerry, who Laura takes an immediate dislike to for no reason whatsoever. And I, I just kept thinking, like, this whole movie feels like it was shot in Thousand Oaks. Like the apartment that they're leaving, it looks like the apartment my wife used to live in when she lived up there. Like it, it, it's just, it's all very Thousand Oaks to me. It's that area because Pyru is essentially, it's just north. So it's on whatever that, yeah. I forget if it's like the 118 or whatever. So It's the 101. It's just up the 101, I think. You know, that's that's where we see him hitchhiking is on the 101. We see the entrance to the 101. It's a little further up from like Thousand Oaks and and you know, Camarillo, where the outlet malls are. Yeah, because it's like more parkish, you know, because it yeah. is a little more yeah. in the farm country. So it's not like it's. Yes. If you're you would go north of the 101, like a little ways for Pyro. Yes. It wouldn't take hours and hours to get there because this movie's sense of time is completely bizarre. So like it's daylight when Chris and Laura leave and they are driving for hours like an insane amount of time to get to pyru meantime ricky on foot passes them we when he see him thumbing a ride it says pyru one mile on the sign he's practically there how 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 does he pass them psychic powers (laughs) i don't know how to explain it any more clearly chris So he's picked up by a driver who has the misfortune to show him a red sweater. So Ricky kills him and drives off. And and again, they lean much harder into the red is his trigger color, even more so than in part two. Like he, it's 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 even more than the doctor writing red car. Good point, Doc. Well, it's that uh, that whole thing. Uh, your your third movie theory, right? This is um this is your dream warriors where Freddy kills you with what you love is coming in uh here it's the red trigger um yep although this movie it's also the end of ricky (laughs) (laughs) the sequels have nothing to do with them no no so ricky stops at a gas station where the attendant and i I love this the attendant is watching the terror 
starring Boris Karloff and Jack Nicholson, a film that Monty Hellman worked on for Roger Corman, which I think is great. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he kill he kills the attendant because the, the attendant's wearing a red Santa hat. And uh, Laura, Chris, and Jerry, they stop at a different gas station to call Grandma, who apparently has psychic abilities as well. Like, that's where Laura got them because she knows the phone is going to ring. She's like, oh, the phone's going to ring. And then it rings. And it's like, okay. All in the family. Based on their conversation, they're still an hour away. They're like, oh, we'll be there in an hour. I'm like, what? Where did they drive to? It's a... Maybe I got lost. Maybe Chris is just an idiot and got lost on the way. I don't know. So Ricky, he arrives at grandma's house first and she feeds him. She's very nice. He's got the wool hat over his glass dome. And it's just about the most absurd image I've ever seen. It's just like he's sitting there. And it's interesting. Like Mosley's Ricky is completely different from Eric Freeman's Ricky in the previous film. Like gone is that insane over the top energy. Instead, Mosley plays him like he's Frankenstein's monster shuffling around until he sees the color red. Yeah. Also gone is about 90 pounds of pure muscle. Um, but- <laughs> well, he's been in a coma for six yeah, years. That's right? true. He's been, he's been wasting you know, away. He's not been working out. But the, uh, the Frankenstein's monster thing is, I mean, that's how they play the sequence. Although the the mother is not blind, right? Like, but they play her. She's just psychic. She's just psychic, but they, she kind of plays like she's the blind man in the hut, giving cigars to the monster. Um, You know, and he unfortunately uh, does not uh, remember a good turn because. Uh, well, unfortunately, she, th- she picks out a present under the tree for him, which is awfully nice. Like that's it's just some random stranger shows yeah. up at your door on Christmas Eve and they say, "Oh, I'm going to give him a present." And and but unfortunately, she picks one that is wrapped in red paper, so it's it's uh, it's goodbye, Grandma. Yeah, lights out. <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, there is part of me that would like to peer through the veil of the multiverse to see an alternate alternate dimension where this movie was made if Freeman had stayed in the role. Because I, I think like this, this interpretation of Ricky takes away everything that is sort of fun and interesting about him. Uh, that said, the image of Mosley with the glass dome on his head, it's amazing. Like it's just amazing. <laughs> I'll never get over it. As long as I live, I'll never get over the image of, of Mosley with the glass dome on his head. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because this this is just kind of the idea of the killer as uh, a Pavlovian instinct, really. Yeah. It's just, if if this happens, then that happens. Um, there's no enjoyment exactly. in it. I, I don't even know that he's quite aware that he's doing it, frankly. Um, he's so out right, of it. Right, which yeah. is completely different from from Eric Freeman's Ricky, you know, and, and his, his sheer glee at just like, you know, at some of the things that he, he gets to do. The, I mean, the other thing about this movie, the other big difference from from the first two is that we really move away from the depiction of violence that we see. Instead, we get like the implication of violence and then the aftermath of violence. Like the gas station attendant that approaches the car, like, you know, he, he we see him approaching the car and then later we see his head on a desk. You know, and the same thing with the, the the bitchy receptionist. Like she, we see Ricky slash at her, and then later we see the image of her with her throat cut. It's it's really they're dialing back. Monty's not interested in like gore or the the right. acts of violence. He's much more interested in the dreamlike nature of the world and the weird connections between the hero, the hero and the, the villain. And I mean, we just talked about deep red in, in the last episode that we did. And I'm like, here we are in another dream world like that. Like what is reality? I mean, it's, yeah. it's, and then 
And then we get to keep cutting away to my favorite buddy cop movie within a movie. Oh, <laughs> even though my one of them's not god. a cop. Oh my god! Like so, we're about halfway through the movie when we're introduced to the film's last major character, Lieutenant Connolly, played by the legendary Robert Culp. And Connolly is the detective on the trail of Ricky. He and he's basically paired up with Doctor Newberry for a fair amount of the film. And holy shit, Rob is is Robert Culp having a grand old time here? He's just chewing scenery left and fucking right. Well, Chris, I mean you're right, but there's something you keep leaving out of the mix—a little item <laughs> called murder. <laughs> It's, the, it's that seeing these two destroy sets with their dialogue <laughs> delivery is it's amazing. It's it's a joy. Again, acting is the best special effect there is. Like, yeah, if, if yeah. you have two people on screen playing off each other and you love it, I mean, it really does not matter the context. I, like, I don't give a shit. Just like, give me more scenes <laughs> of Robert Colt and Richard Beeman. That's all I want. Well, it's good because they talk about those random shit on their on their on their ride on the ride on, well, on the ride up to Grandma's house. I'll get to that in a second because there's something else I want to mention. Um, in a little bit of retconning, Robert Culp mentions that he was there the day they shot down uh, Ricky. Like he was he was one of the cops. Now we know that he wasn't because we saw silent night, deadly night part two, and there's no way Robert Culp was there, but I have to think that in, if this movie were being made today, there would be a dodgy CGI DH version of Robert Culp inserted into footage from part two. For sure. They didn't have the technology. Thank goodness. But that is what they do now for sure. Oh, and, and I mean the amount of de-aging that would have existed in part two, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my god! Oh, how much Ricky de aging would you need? Oh, <laughs> um, strangely, I want to point this out. This is a, this was something I noticed when I was actually going back and rewatching scenes. Despite the fact that Lieutenant Connolly is a professional police officer, he doesn't carry his firearm in a holster. No, he's walking through the hospital, uh, uh, which at that point was a secure location, and he's got his gun stuck in the waistband of his pants. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I uh I don't even know what to say to that. This movie they had they had money for a gun holster. This movie had money they, for a gun holster. Uh, they this definitely a had enough money for a holster. Like that's a exactly the, you get the feeling this was Culp's choice. This had to be Culp's choice. <laughs> He's like, no, I just think I should wear it my pants. He's like that he, he he doesn't play by the rules. And he doesn't play no. by the rules, by the way. No, he doesn't play by the rules. Um so Laura, Chris, and Jerry finally arrive at Grandma's house, and they find Grandma missing. Rob, are they worried or even seemingly at all concerned by the fact that their elderly grandma apparently left the house with food in the oven and burners literally going on the stove? Nope. They are not worried at all. Yeah, I mean, they're worried about the fact that they didn't stop and get what she asked for at the store. They didn't get the butter. She asked, called in on the phone. She's like, oh, I, I have butter. Can you get it on the way? And they didn't even fucking do that. Which newsflash, everybody, no matter what you're doing, unless you're vegan, if you're vegan, this doesn't apply. However much butter you think you need for a holiday meal, 
just double it or you're going to be running out to the just store. You can always you can always put that in the freezer. If you don't yeah. use it, you can always put it in the freezer. It freezes okay. very it'll be, nicely. It'll be fine. This is probably yeah. more important for your life than anything else we will say on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> double the butter. That's it. Um so like 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 I mean they just don't seem that worried. I get Rob, I get worried when my parents don't text me back for a day. They don't get worried about their elderly grandma missing on Christmas Eve, so much so that Jerry decides she's going to take a bath. Like, girl, didn't you bathe before you came? Like, would you would you have done that if grandma was there? And of course, like, Chris joins her because we need a little bit of uh, sexy nudie time in, in, in Silent Night, Deadly Night. Just a little bit, but, you know. Uh, <laughs> but, like, it's so weird that they don't, like, they're not immediately worried. Like, they're just kind of like, hey, let's take a bath. Especially given that one of them is psychic. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's really weird. But I I just assume the power of Ricky's brain is kind of blocking her. Because she also doesn't know that Ricky's there, right? No. Even though they have the connection. Like, and there's times where he's lurking outside the house. Like, and Uh, we see Ricky. She doesn't see him because she's, we see him. But she doesn't see him because she's blind. And she doesn't uh, sense him. But she doesn't him. see him psychic. But he seems yeah. to clearly be sensing her. Yeah. It seems like. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So while this is going on at Grandma's house, Connolly and Newberry are on the hunt for Ricky. And and the doctor speculates that he might have gone to Pyrrhus. But they, they, they are in the, already in the car when they figure this out. I'm not really sure where they're driving to. But then they decide to go up to Pyru. And Rob, they are in the car forever. And the pair have this conversation that ranges, it is both poetic and informative. It ranges from topics such as deja vu to the proper, you know, like pursuit and capture of suspects to cell phones. An extended bit about cell phones. I make it a rule never to attempt two important functions simultaneously. That's what I said. But once you get one, you'll never know how you did without it. You know, you get call registry, and call waiting, call forwarding, 100 memory auto dialer. You got a stick? A what? Well, if you drive a stick shift, you need the hands-free option. That, that's a must. Sounds like you have a uh, financial stake in these hazardous toys. Well, I do get a hundred bucks off my cellular bill for every new sign-up. Well, perhaps you should uh, conserve your zeal and vigor for the pursuit of our lost friend. Doc, you seem to know your way around all this mystical stuff, but do you know what they call it when you get deja vu twice? A reoccurring extrasensory phenomenon. Stupid. (laughs) They are eating that scenery. They chew up the dashboard. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, honestly, their podcast would be better than ours. (laughs) I I would love that. That would be just put a mic on that dashboard and let her rip. Apparently, most of that material was written by Monty Hellman collaborator Steve Guidos, who did a pass on the script at Hellman's request. Uh, And according to him, the line exchange about deja vu is the key to the whole film. You know, it's it's what do you call it when you get deja vu twice? 
a reoccurring extrasensory phenomenon. And no, stupid. Apparently, that line was all about Hollywood's love of sequels. That's what that line was about. It's all about Hollywood's love of sequels and was hugely popular with French movie critics. So it kind of like Matrix Resurrection before... Before Matrix Resurrections. Before, yeah, Warner Brothers is going to make a Matrix sequel with or without us. Yes. In Guido's words, we made an art film out of a slasher film. That is how he views Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 3. Well, yes. I mean, that... It's kind of true. That is what they did. Um, it, again, it, this is seventies, new Hollywood and a quickie slapped together made for video slasher movie. Like it is both. <laughs> it is both. It is. Yeah. A, it's amazing. And, and it's weird because i never get the feeling, even though like he's not interested in doing the gore or the kills, but he has the stuff in there and he'll have some, se- you know, some, sure. action, you know, some sequences, right. He's not, not doing it at all. Um, no, no, people get killed. Yeah, yeah, yeah people get killed. And people the... get chased, and you know, you you see some gore. Um, and I never, it's never presented in a way. And I'm sure that he wasn't his favorite thing, but he's never like looking down on the kills. It's never no. It, it's 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 like exactly what it would be in one of those. You know, he, he's a professional. Is really what it comes down to. Is he was yeah. hired for a job and he did that job and yeah. and and as and a professional more. would. Yeah, and more. Yeah. Uh, the the Odyssey with the with with Lieutenant Connolly and the Doctor comes to an end when Connolly gets out of the car to, in his words, relieve the reptile and, you know, take a piss on the side of the road. And Newberry steals the car and takes off. It's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> that is one of the, the rare scenes where even I have to go. The editing is so spot on. Like, the rhythm of that <laughs> and the reveal in the shot when he looks, like, it is just, it's fantastic. So, at Grandma's house, Laura, Chris, and Jerry have finally, at long last, after the bath, They've decided they should probably look for grandma because it's been a while and they should be concerned. So they grab grandpa's old shotgun and they go out looking for her. And sure enough, they are attacked by Ricky. And Chris Chris is choked out almost immediately. The two girls flee back to the house. Uh, and then Dr. Newberry, having, you know, stolen the car, shows up just a minute too late to help Chris. And he attempts to talk Ricky down. But that goes about as well as you think it would. And it's just, it's the whole scene is amazing. Like, honestly, Richard Beamer is fantastic. It's fantastic. I, I, in this I, yeah, love love him in this movie. I lo- love him in everything. And then, um, and then this is, this leads into the detente between uh, Laura and uh, oh my gosh, the girlfriend Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. Where, yeah, they they kind of you know they mend their fences a little bit as they they get back yeah. to the house, and then. You know, then then Ricky he kind of just crashes through like a a, a a a door that is mostly glass. He just kind of crashes through it into the house, and the two go upstairs and hide in the bedrooms. And apparently, they, like Laura's looking for. There's another gun in the house under one of the beds, but they picked the wrong one. So then Jerry goes to find it, only to discover Ricky hiding under one of the beds. Now, Rob. Despite the fact that this guy shambles like a George Romero zombie, he is up those stairs and hiding under the bed in literally 34 seconds. It's amazing. And has the strength to yank her like with the force of a thousand 
pulleys or something because <laughs> she gets yeah. like sucked under that bed so quick. Boom! Yeah. So Laura goes out. She she goes into the room. She finds Jerry dead, and she retreats to the bathroom. Now this scene is extraordinary. Because we have seen scenes in movies where a girl is trapped in a bathroom and the killer is trying to get in. We, we saw that in The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Obviously, there's a very famous scene of that sort in The Shining. What's different about Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, Rob? It's a Jack and Jill bathroom. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> she gets out the other door and by the time he gets in, she's gone. She goes down to the basement and finds her grandmother's body. Which means that when they got there and grandma wasn't there, they didn't even bother to check the whole house. They didn't go in the basement. Like, why would they? Elderly people never have issues with stairs. No, they take a bath. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, don't know my brain, saying. my yeah. brain, Rob. I Is it possible that the body got moved? Maybe the body got moved. Although I don't oh, know they where checked he... the basement and then yeah. you know, then then later he put it in the ba- like they, they clearly they clearly didn't check anything. They, they, went, they went straight they, to they that bathtub. Took a bath. Yeah. Bathtub. Uh Laura is contacted by her grandmother, Obi-Wan Kenobi style, and she's told to use her power. Use your power, child. Now, does this mean she's going to use her psychic abilities to stop Ricky like Tina did with Jason in Friday the 13th Part 7? No, Rob, it doesn't mean that at all. Nope. (laughs) What it means is Laura's going to break a light bulb. So in her words, now we're even. Despite the fact there's still plenty of light coming from the stairwell. He can still see you. It's Yeah, I... It's... (laughs) It's unfortunate. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, it's, it's, oh God, this movie, I swear to God. So Ricky finds her in the basement, but Chris shows up at the last minute and he, he plugs him with the shotgun, but that is not enough to stop Ricky. And Ricky finally, I think he chokes him out again. I think this time he's dead. Now, folks, listeners at home, you've all seen Halloween. We, we thankfully, through our efforts, we made that, we popularized that film. So, so you must have seen Halloween yeah. by now. So you're thinking, you're thinking, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that Robert Culp is going to show up at the last minute and take Ricky out. He's got a gun in the waistband of his pants. He's going to do it. Rob, is that what happens? Um, Let me flip through my, no. <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> no, as, as Ricky is approaching Laura... He falls onto a sharpened stick that she's holding, which he actually himself broke earlier, and bam, he's dead. I would say it's the weirdest thing, but wait 10 seconds, and <laughs> you'll, you'll see something weirder. Well, we, we next go to the site where Dr. Newberry is dying, like down where, where Ricky stabbed him, and he's still dying. And despite the fact that, like, there are cops on the scene, like like Lieutenant Connolly is there, but he, it's not like Lieutenant Connolly just got there alone. You see like cops and emergency personnel behind him. Like they're, they're setting up the perimeter and all that yeah, stuff. They're yeah, they're setting does he call for help? Like, oh, this man's alive? No, he just listens to Newberry's last words and lets him die. <laughs> to be fair, the guy did make him look like a fool by stealing his car. <laughs> You You don't want that story to get out. Can't have evidence of that. Uh, Back at the house, the paramedics are taking Ricky's body out. You hear one of them say they might be able to save that guy. And I guess the idea was to leave the door open for Ricky to come back uh, in a a sequel. Uh, But that did not happen. 
This was the end of the of the the Billy and Ricky Chapman slash Caldwell saga. Uh, it ends here, but it is not the end for the Silent Night Deadly Night series because this movie was successful enough that that IVE actually made two more Silent Night Deadly Night movies that don't feature the story of Ricky and Billy at all. So instead, it becomes this sort of Christmas themed horror anthology. Not unlike what John Carpenter and Deborah Hill wanted to do with the Halloween series yeah. back in the early 80s, but but di- here, direct to video. Well, and, and nor is it the end of this movie, because... <laughs> oh, well, there's that. Oh, God, I almost forgot. We end when with Laura's driving away, I think, in the, you know, the dead of night. Yes. And yeah. um, Robert Culp is driving her off. Yeah. And she says... Merry Christmas. And then we we get a shot. One final inexplicable <laughs> shot of Ricky dressed in a tuxedo, brain cap and all, looking directly into the camera and wishing the audience a happy new year. Cue credits. Rob, I can't I cannot figure out which movie is more bonkers. The movie that uses half an hour of its predecessor's footage, or the one with the dude walking around with his brain in a glass dome. I I genuinely like they are both so bizarre in such different ways. It is incredible that they are part of the same series. Yeah. And all I can tell you is that uh that is the hallmark of the sequels in this series. And whenever you do get around to part four, I can tell you in a completely different way. Holy motherfucking shit, Chris. Is that one bonkers too? <laughs> and while I have not seen five, just from viewing the trailer for five, I think that that also lives up in it. I mean, five's got Mickey Rooney in it. So, well, I mean, there you go. It's got Mickey Rooney. <laughs> and if you have Brian Usna's involvement in anything, it's going to be, uh, I believe five had effects by screaming mad George as well. So, Oh really? Yeah. I oh, think okay. if I remember the trailer correctly, <laughs> what I, what I think is really interesting about the first three silent night, deadly night movies is that they're actually a really interesting study of what was happening with horror films during this period. So like the first film comes out in 1984, towards the end of the golden age of the slasher film. And that genre obviously has its roots in the exploitation films of the 1970s. Like the the, the first weekend that Silent Night, Deadly Night 1 came out, it, it actually outgrossed A Nightmare on Elm Street, which opened on the same day. But pretty soon, its its theatrical run gets cut, uh, you know, gets cut out from under it because pressure from parents groups, it gets pulled from theaters. Yeah, and, and if you, you're talking about the the influences, man, I mean, in a certain way, this is like someone said, well, what if we just followed the killer in Bird with the Crystal Plumage right. from the moment they got damaged, we go through their life and then watch them kill and then they die. That's what Silent Night, right. Deadly Night is. Uh, yeah, and we commented on that when we we talked about it in our Halloween. It was the first one that basically followed the killer almost exclusively. Yeah. Extraordinary. Uh, and and so it gets pulled from theaters, and but it still does well on home video. And the irony, of course, of that is that the burgeoning home video market helped put an end to the grindhouse and drive-in circuits where exploitation cinema had thrived in the 1970s. But based on its home video success, you get this quick and admittedly cheap sequel being commissioned, and that absolutely tanks at the box office, but again, does enough business on home video that the distributor commissions a direct-to-video sequel. Now, Rob, here's where things get really interesting. Mm -hmm. It was the success of the home video market 
that made the independent film boom of the 90s possible. Films that may not have had necessarily been profitable in theaters now had a second bite at at sort of the revenue apple. And one such movie, for example, was Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs, which was produced by Live Entertainment, the company formerly known as IVE, that produced and distributed Silent Night, Deadly Nights 3, 4, and 5. In fact, it was IVE executive Richard Gladstein, whose first credit was as an executive producer on Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, and who appears in the film as a police detective, who championed and executive produced Reservoir Dogs which also had Monty Hellman as a sort of an executive producer as well. But Gladstein was the one who who basically championed that film at live entertainment. And Tarantino said in an interview, Gladstein was the guy at the company that said, I'm going to take a chance on this kid. Quote, I really owe my career to him. Ah. So imagine... Imagine a world where if Silent Night, Deadly Night 3 hadn't been successful, that could have ended Gladstein's career at IVE. And who knows if he would have been in a position to take a chance on Quentin Tarantino, who was then an unknown commodity. So the bottom line is, without the success of Silent Night, Deadly Nights Part 2 and 3, we won't necessarily have Quentin Tarantino. How different are the last three decades of cinema? Holy shit. It's funny that you, because I did not know that about the executive at IVE, but in some ways, with 2020 hindsight, it makes the decision, some of the decisions for Silent Night, Deadly Night 3 make more sense. Because this guy clearly actually cared. This wasn't just selling widgets to him. He cared about movies. And he's had a long career since. He could, he still still works today. He's he, you know he's. You don't hire Monty Hellman if you don't care. You don't let Monty Hellman right. make this movie if you don't care. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. 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 It, 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 exactly that. It is, and it's just, it's just fascinating that this, this crazy little film series, which is admittedly, you know, it's, it's kind of bonkers. There's some of it's a little shoddy, but it really is bridging the gap between the exploitation cinema of the seventies and the, the, the independent film boom of the 1990s. It's, it's actually serves as connective tissue between those two eras of American filmmaking. Yeah. And even the modern era of horror, you could say, I mean, if you squint, you can see the A24 version of Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, better watch out. There's no question. You absolutely can. I realize I just sound insane. Go commit me right now. But it's no, it's you honestly don't. not that far off. You'd probably just have less talking. <laughs> I mean, There'd like, be a sheen on it that this film doesn't have. But like it's 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 not that far off. Even the weird unexplained psychic weird unexplained psychic stuff happens in A24 movies all the time. And and what they've leaned into is we don't need to give some bullshit explanation. We just make it weird. It's like it's it's like David S. Pumpkins. It's like you don't explain it, and therefore people can fill in those blanks. Or it's like Deep Red and the psychic to start that uh, film. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Listeners, go back oh, one that, episode no. if you haven't uh, listened already. That's where we are. Is we, we you know, like th- these direct to videos things that that seem innocuous at the time. You don't know the like the 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 snowball effect that have butterfly flaps his wings in Thousand Oaks, and you get Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, there we are. <laughs> Canada changes its tax laws, you get Cronenberg. I mean, these things happen, right? It's true. Yeah. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So I think that uh, that about wraps up our Silent Night, Deadly Night Christmas special. Um, folks, we hope you've enjoyed it. We hope everyone out there has a happy holidays, regardless of what holiday you celebrate. Uh, we hope it's happy and bright. And, uh, you know, if you go to grandma's house on Christmas Eve and she's not there where you expect her to be there, do a full search of the house, including the basement, before you go take a bath, just to make sure. That's my holiday advice. And my holiday advice is don't be naughty because you'll get it. <laughs> don't be naughty. Um we will come back in 2024. We are going to have another special bonus episode. And this one, Rob, has been a long time coming because at the very beginning of this year, we were guests on the Force 5 podcast, Brad Pitt Draft, where we each came up with a list of Brad Pitt movies and the audience voted on whose list was better. And Rob, because you picked Johnny Swade as one of your films, I easily- I lost in a landslide. <laughs> I easily Lit. won that contest. So we are going to be doing. Was, this was this was Reagan Mondale. You can just say it. <laughs> yeah, I, this. Yeah, no, I was, was the Washington Generals. Was, you were the Harlem Globetrotters. It's it's okay. There's no question. I've come to terms with this <laughs> I, nearly I, a year I later. It, well, I wasn't even that good. It was just you. You, you threw I was it. That you threw bad. it with Johnny yes. Swade. No one. No one likes my opinions. I know. <laughs> But as a consequence, it probably also hates my list. Yes. <laughs> Let us know, Brad. We want to know if you, how you feel about Johnny Swade. Uh, it, we'll do a whole Johnny Swade episode yeah. if Brad Pitt wanted to come on. I'm the, my goodness. I'm the only person in the world who I know will say it's, it's a goddamn work of genius. <laughs> Rob, you stick to your guns. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise, uh, including not, me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But because Rob picked Johnny Swade as one of his films, I won that contest. So we are going to be doing a special Get Chris Another episode where we're going to explore a movie that I love that was not a big hit at the time it came out, although I kind of wish it could have been. I, I kind of wish that could have been a movie that kicked off a Get Me Another series, even though it had so join us on January 16th for our special bonus episode. So we're going to be keeping the title of the film that I've selected secret until Get Chris Another drops on January 16th. But feel free to reach out on social media and take your best guess at the film I've picked that I, I love with all my heart that didn't wasn't successful as it should have been and I really wish that it was. Uh, and then a few weeks after that, we'll be launching the first full series of 2024, Get Me Another, A Hard Day's Night. Oh, Chris, I was going to just say, you know, if people are going to guess, you want to throw them a clue as to what the movie might be. That is a great idea, Rob. Here's my clue. The film that I've chosen deals with the subject of communism. Ooh. There you go. All right. Uh, so, yeah, again, and then after that, we'll be launching uh, Get Me Another Hard Day's Night. We are very excited for that. And uh, again, come back and join us on January 16th for Get Chris Another. And it's going to be a good time. And thank you all so much for listening. We hope you have a happy new year. And we will be back in 2024. As always, we are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter Instagram threads and blue sky at get me another pod. If you've enjoyed the show, please tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell that boozy Saint Nick before something terrible befalls him and join us next time. As we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, get me another. 
stupid day!